millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the very first episode of Smarty Pants, the new podcast from The American Scholar. I'm Stephanie Bastek, web editor and now podcast host, and I'd like to welcome you to the magazine's first audio enterprise. I hope you'll be joining us every two weeks as we bring you fresh new content and interviews with people from the worlds of literature, culture, criticism, public affairs, and pretty much anything else you want to hear about. Updates on the works in progress reported in the magazine, and excerpts and conversations from the world of books. This week, I'll be speaking to Mary Roach, science writer extraordinaire, updating you on the progress of the Folger Library's crowdsourcing project, and giving you an excerpt from Andrew Dixon's globetrotting new book about the Bard in honor of Shakespeare's 400th death day. Without further ado, let's jump right into our interview with Mary Roach. You may know her as the author of such scintillating titles as Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal, and Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. Mary joins us from her home in California to talk about her newest book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, which comes out in June. The book is less concerned with the killing parts of war, the guns, the ammo, the planes, and more with the keeping alive. What keeps American soldiers on their feet? What is it about their uniforms, their vehicles, their bodies, even the food they eat? That keeps them safe. And what happens when the worst happens? When a soldier is injured or even dies? Mary Roach isn't afraid to dive deep into a discussion of the serious issues plaguing the military, whether it's exhaustion, heat, diarrhea, IEDs, or even sex therapy for injured soldiers. But as with her previous books, even serious ones that talk about human cadavers, there's a touch of levity, whether she's writing about the adorable little maggots that are making sure soldiers' wounds stay clean of infection, or smuggling herself onto a U.S. submarine. She always has the ability to bring you right there with her, into the setting. In this case, the U.S. military. Hi, Mary. Uh, I guess to start, how did it feel to be a media puke investigating the science of war in the U.S. military? <laughs> I love that. I prefer the other. There's another slang, which is much, much kinder, which is pencil. I like that one. But I, yeah, I was, I was totally a media puke. But people were very patient with me. I think if I had embedded, uh, that's when I would have really felt like a media puke, as in in the way, asking stupid questions, oversleeping, unable to put on her body armor without two people helping, that kind of thing. 
I, I see. So like a media puke is someone who would be embedded like in the field. I think so, because I think it's a term that um, personnel who've deployed who are actually on bases or on missions who are dealing with media uh, getting in the way. The book is about the signs of humans at war. But as you write in the introduction, it's not the killing, but the keeping alive that really interests you. Um, so what inspired you to write the book? How did you fall upon that topic? I got interested in military science in a uh, kind of an unusual way. I was in India reporting a story on the world's hottest chili pepper. And the Indian Defense Ministry had weaponized that chili, you know, ground it up and made it into uh, kind of like mace, you know, tear gas. And I thought, well, I need to go talk to them about this. And uh, as it turns out, military science is a lot more esoteric than one might think. And I thought, well, this is really fertile Mary Roach ground. Uh, I didn't end up reporting on any of the Indian things. Uh, it, the, the book is entirely based in the U.S. because the Indian Defense Ministry is very squirrely about talking about any of their projects um, except the weaponized chili pepper. They, would, they did eventually talk to me about that. You've said before that one of the hardest things is finding settings for your books. Uh, you know, a project yeah. that comes up that fits the book's theme, that's visual, that I guess in the Army's case isn't top secret. <laughs> so was it hard to find settings for Grunt? No, it was it was, it was was tough for, because, uh, well, I'd hear about something, you know, I'd see something written up and it's something that had already happened and I'd go, I missed that. Or uh, we're going to happen in six months and six months in the military often becomes a year. So sometimes it, was a, it wasn't so much access, uh, getting access as, as waiting for it to happen. And then uh, other times it was access. With the Camp Lemonnier in Djibouti, uh, that was uh, just the, the public affairs people scratching their heads and going, is this CENTCOM? AFRICOM? <laughs> who do we even go to? There were all these emails flying back and forth. We have this woman who wants to report on diarrhea and <laughs> special operations. <laughs> and she's got a researcher who's willing to escort, you know, take her there, make sure she doesn't get herself in trouble, keep her out of the classified areas. Finally, it turned out to be this lovely man on the ground in Djibouti at Camp Lemonnier, Seamus Nelson, uh, who just one day looked at all these emails, walked into his boss's office and said, you know, this isn't just, this isn't like diarrhea. It's not just going to, you can't hydrate and wait for it to go away. This woman is not going away. Let's, let's just, like, what do you think? Should we just say yes? The commander of the base said, yeah, all right, fine. Bring the diarrhea lady. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I like that he was like, she's like diarrhea. <laughs> um, you can't just hydrate and wait for it to go away. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. He also had this great line. He goes, I said, so how did you finally get this to happen, Seamus? He goes, you know, it was just a, we were all just trying to figure out whose swim lane is this in? There are a lot of swim lanes in the Army, I would bet. The military has a million swim lanes. Yeah. Were you limited by other kinds of swimways, like uh, top secret or classified? Was there some stuff that you just couldn't touch or that yes. you researched and got involved in and then you had to redact it or you had to take it out or things like that? Yes, there were there were things that I naively thought I could cover. For example, the special operations forces. Uh, special operations has a a weather arm. They've got weathermen, and I loved the juxtaposition of like special operations, and then you know, so somebody going like, "Oh, what do you do for so? You a sniper? What do you do?" I'm the weather guy, <laughs> so I just thought I'd love to hang out with the 
the weather people because I, I, I obviously that's a critical element in um, in a mission and in particularly if you're flying. Uh, but that uh, so I called the public affairs office for special operations and all of those missions are classified. I mean. Uh, of course. And uh, I said, but yeah, but I'd just be covering the weather. I won't listen to any, I won't pay any attention to the other stuff. He's like, no, no, that's not going to happen. Special ops do crop up from time to time, though, in the book. Like in, in Djibouti, you have an informative encounter with one special ops guy who thought you were from NCIS initially. Can you talk about that? Yes. These guys are hit all the time because they're operating out way out in remote villages and they're eating what the locals eat, the, the water isn't treated. So they get sick a lot. Uh, so I wanted to talk to uh, special operations guys, but they kind of keep to themselves, but they, they come into the mess hall. So I came up with Seamus Nelson, who's the very helpful PR guy. And uh, I said, Seamus, you have to come with you. You have to help me. And so we sort of crossed the dining facility to this one guy in the corner, kind of like fifth graders at the dance, very nervously. And then, and then uh, Seamus said, uh, can we talk to you? And the guy goes, I'm done. And Seamus is like, oh, just it'll just take a minute. I'm leaving. And then uh, I jumped in and brought up diarrhea. And, and then he actually, I, you know, I said, this is kind of weird. You know, it sounds like it's a silly topic. And he said, it's not. Sit down. And we had a really interesting conversation. Uh, and he was very candid about it. And it, it and it it's awful. You know, you, what, what do you do? You, you know, he, he said, you know, I wanted kind of him to tell this. And there I was, you know, and to set the scene. He said, I can't give you the details. And um, he said, but he, I kept pushing him. He said, I don't really know what you want. I've soiled my pants in Afghanistan. I've soiled my pants in Iraq. I, I don't know what you guys want. You know, and at one point I said, oh, you should try, a, you know, a, a one-time dose of this drug and, and some Imodium. And he's like, who are you? What do you? Who are you? <laughs> he kept trying to figure out what are you really after. At the end of the conversation, he apologized for having been so frosty initially. He said, "You guys, you scared me. I thought you were NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigation Services." One thing that that I really enjoyed about the military's science experiments and their their testing is that they're really detail oriented. Even buttons, for instance, undergo like horrible torture. <laughs> yeah. um, so, were were, were the I guess, what were the particularly cruel testing methods for military equipment that you encountered? Oh, the buttons was a good one. The buttons was like there was, you would plunge the button in boiling water for a certain amount of time. You would pull the shank from the body. I mean, it really sounded like medieval torture. There were three or four of these these um, tortures that the button would have to endure in order to pass muster as a military button. Uh, they were quite quite extraordinary. Twenty two pages of button specifications. Wow. Um, yeah, and there's a photograph in Grunt of this device. That's it, it, it's two feet, well, two lower legs uh, on this device that walks up and down. It's a boot tester, and it's just you know you turn it on, and those boots are walking, and it, it's just to make sure they're not going to fall apart. And after twenty miles. I've noticed in uh, many of your books that there are corpses and dead bodies everywhere. In Stiff, which is all about dead bodies, uh, even in Packing for Mars, in which you talk about some testing that was done with cadavers in space. Why do you think that is? Why do you think dead bodies come up everywhere? Well, Stiff was my first book, and, and it remains my most popular book. And I'm always hearing from readers, when are you going to write Stiff 2? When are you going to write another <laughs> clamoring for more dead bodies? <laughs> I throw a body in there whenever I can. It's now it's almost like, you know how 
Alfred Hitchcock movies, there you know there was always a cameo where Alfred Hitchcock would be in the background. I feel like I've got to get I've got to get a cadaver in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so this book, I didn't I didn't seek them out. I just came across them. They were trying to create a, a essentially a crash test dummy for underbody blast if a personnel carrier or other vehicle drives over an IED in a roadway, and some of these IEDs are huge now. How do you test the vehicles to make sure they are going to keep people safe? So they were working, uh, they were using cadavers to calibrate these new dummies called We A Man. So there was that one, and then there was the um, the rehearsal of the uh, penis transplant. That was two cadavers. And am I forgetting? No, I think that's everything. The underblast test was what I was thinking of, too, especially because wasn't that the one where the study was almost halted days before it was going to start because some commanding officers weren't happy about it? Yes, there, wa- there was a high-ranked, there was a general who felt that it was inappropriate to use a cadaver in this way. I, didn't, I don't have the details of exactly what his objection was, whether it was on religious grounds or he thought it was disrespectful. Um, and the test was called off, and, and it was called off in the most inopportune way. It was, there's a tremendous amount of work, three days of work that goes on. Basically, you're planting um, a man-made nervous system almost. You're, you're putting sensors all over the different limbs and parts of the body, and then these have to be all hooked up by wire, and then that wire comes out the back of the neck into a, a, a computer, basically. And it's a lot of work, and it yields a lot of useful information. And all of this had happened. It was They were down to the last day, and the call came in and said, this, this general has called off the test. And it was not only a tremendous waste of time and money, but also of the donor's gift. I mean, if somebody gives themselves, gives their body to science, they do it with the intent and the hope that something good will come of it. And so that was the point that was made. They went back to this man, this general, and and explained that. And uh, the last possible second before decomposition would have rendered these cadavers um, useless for the work, uh, it went ahead. But that uh, that is... uh, been very difficult for people trying to do this work, you know, and it, trying to keep service members safe and, and alive. You know, the, the goal was let's create a vehicle in which you can be safe when you drive over a large IED. And there are some of these, you can go on the internet and you can see footage of huge vehicles being flipped three times in the air. Uh, so it's no easy feat to keep those people safe. And one of the challenges was, you know, okay, you, all these contractors are presenting us with these vehicles, but we need to know, are they, I mean, they look safe, they seem like they'd be safe, but until you really put a body in there and blow up an explosive underneath, you don't know. So they they set up a rig that simulates the vehicle, and they've got a tower to, that's the right height, and the soil, they've got the soil set up, and then they bring in the C4, and they blow it up. Do you feel like there's sort of a like a, a rat race almost between the size of the IEDs and the size of the of the vehicles. Like as the vehicles get bigger and more protected, the IEDs get larger and more explosive. Yes, absolutely. That sense that the enemy is always two steps ahead. It takes time to develop a new vehicle, test it, and get it in the field. And by the time that happens, um, not only might the bombs be bigger, but they might have come up with some shaped charges. They're using like these amped up RPG type things to pierce the hull. So you're always playing catch up for sure. Is the Army also regulated by 
um, organizations like the FDA, for instance, like maggots took forever to be approved by the FDA for use, but did the Army get to use them first? Are they subject to the same kinds of um, approval? The maggots are the only uh, example of something that had to have FDA approval, but um, maggot therapy for cleaning and disinfecting, debriding wounds uh, came out of the Civil War. So originally, there wasn't an FDA to worry about. And now the, the, the problem hasn't been approval. It's just been that to bring hundreds of maggots into a hospital situation, it's, it's a dangerous thing because if you don't do it right, if you leave them too long and they pupate and they become flies, now you have flies flying around spreading germs, uh, the last thing you want in a hospital situation, especially with all the antibiotic-resistant bacteria is flies going from patient to patient and from you know toilet to patient. It seemed like such a complicated process. Like I'd never really thought about the flies that came afterwards, which I guess is what most people think of. No, I hadn't either. I, I kind of had maggots and flies sort of separate in my head, um, you know, because maggots are so, you know, you just they, they've got such a powerful association with with death and corpses and decomposition. You don't really think of them. So they're baby flies. They're just little baby flies. They're, 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 uh, the, the imagery we associate with them has just created this revulsion. But when you take a maggot out of the context or just, just you know, a maggot on your finger, it's a, like a little inchworm. It's, they're very cute. It's just when you see them, you know, massing in a wound and it's all tied in with the dead body. It's normally a dead decomposing body in which you see them or I see them. I probably see more maggots than the average person. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Medical Maggots, the, the organization that sells them, uh, they also have T-shirts that you can wear when you're getting maggot therapy that say maggots on board. Like you're proudly announcing to the world, I've got maggots on me. You know, I, just, I, I like that there's a little bit of uh, pride and humor uh, associated with yeah, you got to own your maggots, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, there were a couple unconventional things. The maggots, for instance, and also um, two words I never thought I would use together, sex therapy in the military. Can you talk a little bit about how sex is treated, especially, as you mentioned before, for, um, you know, for soldiers who might have had injuries below the belt? Right. It has been avoided for the most part. At the time I reported the book, Walter Reed didn't have a, have a full-time staff sex therapist. There are, there's, there are people who do sort of intimacy counseling, but there's just, there's not enough of it to go around. And it isn't just for people who've had injuries to the groin. There's a tremendous amount of medication that goes on when you're, you know, having surgery for, you know, these massive injuries. You know, there, there are three or four different classes of drugs that could affect your libido or your ability to get an erection, or there, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And not a lot gets said about that. And it's sort of left to the patient to figure out and it, you know, there's, there's a feeling that there's so much going on with some of these guys who come in who have this, they've lost a leg and they've, you know, they've lost multiple limbs and they've got internal injuries. And the feeling was, for a while, was like, you know, it's, sex is the last of their concerns. They, you know, they want to be able to, like, brush their own teeth or be able to, like, you know, get in and out of bed. And I mean, just the, like that sort of, it sort of fell through the cracks. It, it was treated a bit like, you know, icing on the cake. Ah, yeah, we'll figure that out later. Yeah, it seems like one of the examples of sort of the military coming late to psychological cures, you know, the recent emphasis on PTSD. So do you think that the Army is taking steps in the science to reflect that? Yeah, I do think so. I think the sex therapy, it's it'll be the next thing to come. And I think it's been a matter of, of funding dollars in the sense that 
sex is a lifestyle thing. It's not really a health thing. And it's taken people like Rob Dean to say, no, no, this actually is, this is part of being a healthy human being. And this is what keeps a marriage together or a couple together. And this, this is important. So we already talked about how corpses sort of, you, you bring that up every time. Were there any other examples from your previous books that helped you with grunt, uh, like maybe the sense of taste and, and smell for from Gulp and the uh, stink bomb chapter here? Yeah, well, I had, because I'd had a, in, in my last book written about the sense of smell and how critical it is to flavor, I guess that sort of set the stage for my fascination for uh, this World War II, not a stink bomb, but a, um, a weaponized evil-smelling substance. It'd be, it was for, World War II was for resistance elements, like a, a, a subtle thing you would try to like smear it on the, the coat of a, German or Japanese officer and for, for the purposes of humiliation and ostracization. So it was a, a kind of a bizarre uh, effort. There was testing. There had a lot of problems with the delivery system. There was a lot of backfire and dribble, and the person squeezing the tube, would his hand would get smeared with the, with the substance, and there was a lot of angry, peevish correspondence going back and forth. So, it, you know, it it's it's just an example of me being unable to leave this out of the book. It's uh, you know it's a historical chapter. It's uh, although there there are uh, contemporary efforts still to come up with a universally revolting smell to be used to clear a building or to keep people away from uh, terrain you don't want them coming into. So so the work has continued. So what is the worst smell currently? It's something called stench soup, and it's a mixture of I, I, off the top of my head, um, I think it's it's not just fecal smelling. It's it's sulfury. It's got elements of foot odor and vomit. But what I love is that the first note is kind of sweet and pleasant, and that encourages the person to set aside their tentativeness and take a deep breath. So it's very crafty and wily how they've created the evil smelling substance, which was originally called. Who, me? As in, I didn't fart. You know, that was just such a bizarre, who, me? You have to wonder whether the military always like knows when they're being funny or whether it's unintentional. That's one of the things I really do appreciate about your books is just how funny they are. I haven't laughed out loud reading a book in, in a while, and uh, that was really refreshing, especially with the topic like grunt, which you know skirts so close to issues of, of war and death and killing. Um, yes, do you find that you need to write, you know, a, a really funny historical chapter like about shark repellent after you've written a really dark chapter? Or do you, you know, do everything <laughs> once and then do the laughing at the end? Or do you have a process? No, I, 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 I don't I don't need to do it for myself. But I feel for the reader that I I really want to include. I wanted to include a couple lighter chapters, even though they're a little indulgent in that they don't quite fit the theme as well. I mean, they, they kind of fit, but they're, but they're definitely in there to provide a little levity, I, I think, because it's a, it's a heavy topic. There are moments of uh, lightness in the book, but yeah, I, that was part of the decision to include those two chapters. So the book is over and it's been written, and I'm assuming you finished writing it and doing all your research before the Army announced that women would be serving in combat roles. Did you see any, um, was there any science specifically uh, regarding women in combat or how women's bodies might react differently. Uh, I'm thinking of something like yeah. menstruation, for example. Yeah, the 
there are a couple of papers that have been written about feminine hygiene. Uh, it wasn't really research. It was just a lot of interviews with women saying, first of all, the supply of feminine hygiene products is not what you'd want it to be. Procuring them uh, was sometimes a problem. Privacy uh, also an issue sometimes. The military did do a fair amount of work in t testing different they're called FUDS, female urinary diversion device, and this is this little pink plastic funnel thing that you, you can buy them for camping, too. You kind of open the fly and stick it in there, and it enables you to pee like a man. You can pee against a tree. You could stand in the doorway of a personnel carrier and pee outside. So I didn't uh, cover it in the book because it was straightforward. It's like, yes, these are a good idea. Yes, let's buy some and distribute them. But the, the issue, it wasn't just an issue of inconvenience and privacy. Um, women on, say, on a long traverse, you know, in, in a personnel carrier, there's no rest area, and they tended to just hold it, and there was a, a high rate of urinary tract infections. So, it, you know, it was, it was impacting their health in a significant way, and, and so that was the impetus to give everybody FUDs, <laughs> the FUD, the female urinary diversion device. Another great uh, army acronym. Yeah. Very much so, yeah. The FUD. Yeah. And uh, um, I haven't seen the military's FUDs. I don't know if they're in olive drab or camo print rather than pink. I mean, I've seen pink ones, but... They're probably as heavily uh, regulated as the Army uniforms. Yeah, that's that's, that's right. There's probably 20 pages of specifications. <laughs> or toilet paper. Can't Army toilet paper only come in certain colors? Yeah. The government specifications for toilet paper were quite lengthy. You know, it was the uh, moisture wicking rate, the tensile strength, the color, the percentage of post-consumer recycled waste. There was, I mean, it was a very, very technological piece of toilet paper. Uh, is that something you, you know, consciously do to pick areas like even the body that are sort of gross for people to think about? and then try to combat that ignorance and say, like, no, it's really interesting, it's really important? Yeah, I do enjoy that. I want to take people from thinking, oh, this topic or this book is disgusting. It's really off-putting. But at the same time, it's also a little tantalizing. It's like, oh, hmm. I mean, it, it, it's a bit like a driving by a car wreck. You know, there's this, you want to look away and you want to look. Um, but I like to, to bring people into the topic and have them walk away from the book saying, oh, I thought this would be gross, but it's it's really interesting, and it's important in some ways. I know it's taboo to ask, but do you have another topic in mind for your next book? I don't. God help me. Open to suggestions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the human body only, only has so much terrain and is only thrown into so many situations. The more books I do, the harder it is to come up with something, or else I'm going to have to just step out of my box and do something completely different. <laughs> Do you have a file cabinet or something where you write down, like Ray Bradbury allegedly used to have a file cabinet full of index cards with ideas for future stories, and it was just like overflowing. Do you squirrel these uh, things away and then like decide <laughs> like, oh, I have enough things about corpses? Well, I, I definitely have a story idea and a book idea folder, and they're pathetically thin. And the stuff in there I've looked at and rejected many times over. Would that I were like Ray Bradbury with big, fat, brimming stuffed folders full of fabulous stuff. Now, I once I have two or three on a theme to get me rolling and figure I'll find 10 more things that will fit and throw a cover on it, and then I'll have a book. But right now, no, the files are pretty, the cupboards are pretty bare. I'm sure you'll find something. I'll find something. Well, thank you so much, Mary. It was great to chat with you. Well, thanks so much. This was really fun. 
Grunt is available wherever books are sold. So if you see it in the window of your local bookstore, go on and give it a read. You won't regret it. Our next segment checks in on a project that our editorial assistant, Charlotte Sally, reported on for the last issue of The Scholar. With every year that passes since Shakespeare's death, we're a year further from understanding what it was really like to live in Elizabethan England. Shakespeare covered a lot in his plays, but he didn't give us all the details. What did it smell like? What did people eat? Was there marmalade? To give us a better picture of 16th century England, and some answers to these pressing questions, the Folger Library has undertaken a modern approach, crowdsourcing. Together with the Oxford English Dictionary and Zooniverse, they've created Shakespeare's World, a crowdsourcing operation that invites volunteers to transcribe English Renaissance documents into a digital archive. Almost 15,000 volunteers have contributed to the project already, deciphering everything from love letters and IOU notes to obscure recipes. But what's it really like to decipher the handwriting of people who lived, died, loved, and ate mutton 400 years ago? We sat down with Charlotte to find out. So Charlotte, nice to have you here in the studio today. Good to be here. So how many documents are available on Shakespeare's world right now? Thousands upon thousands. There have been 25,000 transcribed so far, and that's in a matter of months. The project is at least three years long. They're hoping for it to be more. So I'm, you, you do the math. Actually, please do the math. I can't do that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's in my job description. But could you walk us through the process for deciphering one of these documents? Yeah. So um, I tried it out. It's really hard. But, you know, don't don't let that put you off. You sign up online. You create an account. And then it will ask you if you want to transcribe a recipe or you want to transcribe a letter. And you pick whatever one you want, and then it will come up on your computer screen. And then you go letter by letter, word by word, whatever you can make out, you then type in on a little kind of floating box. You can pick as many words as you want. You can do the whole page, or you can do it word by word, which is what I tried to do just <laughs> because it's it's um it's kind of like reading like doctor handwriting. So you don't have any experience in paleo or paleolithography, what's it called? Paleography. Paleography. But do any of the volunteers deciphering these letters have special training to improve their skills, or is it just amateurs? It can be anyone, just whoever's interested. You don't have to have a degree. You can just, there's like a page when you're getting started that says, here's some helpful tips. I looked through those. They were helpful. But it definitely takes some getting used to. And I think the best part about it is that um, there's a chat forum. So when you get stuck or you think you found a new word or you can't really make out exactly what a couple things are, you can post it. Most people will post like a snapshot of it. And then everyone else on the forum who's interested will then write what they think it is. And then also um, a lot of experts from the Folger, from Oxford English Dictionary, will also read the blog and post what they think it is. Have there been any other very weird discoveries since December? I know you mentioned recipes, and I can only imagine what they were cooking in the 16th century. Yeah, there was a lot of mutton and um, stews and roasts. There was a marmalade recipe that I thought would be cool. Was it marmalade with a fruit or some bizarre ingredient? Uh, no, it seemed pretty normal, which is why I was in- <laughs> I was interested in it. Like okay. some a good uh, breakfast marmalade. 
Very cool. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us, Charlotte. And we look forward to checking in on the development of Shakespeare's world over the next three years. Yeah, me too. In the spring issue of The Scholar, Wendy Smith reviewed Andrew Dixon's new book, Worlds Elsewhere, Journeys Around Shakespeare's Globe. Dixon travels the world from South Africa to New Zealand in search of Shakespearean adaptations, describing such varied productions as an Afghani troupe's Dari Persian version of the Comedy of Errors, a Maori language, Troilus and Cressida, complete with strutting Hakka war dance, and King Lear, interpreted as a sardonic folktale by the Belarus Free Theater. But before Andrew Dixon lets you in on the secret of where Chinese premiers go when they first visit England, I'd like to thank you for joining us for the very first episode of Smarty Pants. It's going to be a crazy adventure, and if you have any suggestions for where we should go together, people you'd love for us to interview, works in progress you'd like to catch up on, strange ideas for new segments, let us know. Send an email to podcast at theamericanscholar.org or find us on Twitter at theamsco. You can also look us up on our website, theamericanscholar.org slash podcast. Stick around for this weird excerpt from Andrew Dixon's Worlds Elsewhere, in which he examines the love affair between Mandarin readers and Shakespeare. Also, pig semen. Enjoy. June 2011, Wen Bao, then Premier of China, arrived in Britain on a three-day state visit. A pressing list of issues awaited his attention. One was the relationship between China's latest five-year economic plan and the Eurozone crisis. Sino-British defence goals were in urgent need of harmonisation. More delicately, there was what the official press release called enhancing mutual understanding. Diplomatic speak for fence-mending after wrangles over China's record on human rights. In London, it was announced, one would be officially welcomed at 10 Downing Street by Prime Minister David Cameron, and would make a speech among friendly personages at the Royal Society. Instead of his plane putting down at Heathrow or somewhere close to the capital, however, one's officials directed it further north, to the small airport outside Birmingham. Partly this was convenient for a visit to the MG car plant at Longbridge, now under the control of the mighty Chinese state-owned SAIC conglomerate. But there was another reason too. Before embarking on official business, Premier One wanted to indulge in a spot of pleasure. He wanted to visit Stratford-upon-Avon. On a bright, blustery summer morning, One spent an hour and a half in Stratford, 25 minutes longer than his minders had scheduled. He was escorted around Shakespeare's birthplace and shown a copy of the first folio, then invited to admire the only surviving letter to the poet from fellow Warwickshireman Richard Quinney, It is unclear whether it was pointed out to one, vis-à-vis the UK's ballooning trade deficit with China, that Quinney was asking Shakespeare for a loan. Afterwards, the Chinese Premier sat on a bench in the sunshine, accompanied by the British Culture Secretary, to watch a scene from Hamlet. Beneath a fluttering Chinese flag, Ophelia presented him with a sprig of rosemary for remembrance. One had his own remembrances. He'd been a fan of Shakespeare since he was a lad. His works are not to be read only once or even ten times, he observed sagely to the assembled media. They must be read up to a hundred times to be fully understood. The official Xinhua news agency let it be known that the Premier had even been boning up on criticism during the flight. He was particularly taken by Goethe's reverence for the poet and had cited a line from Zum Shakespeare's Tag as proof. 
Before leaving the birthplace, one donated a copy of Love's Labour's Lost, translated into Mandarin by the scholar Liang Shichui. In the visitor's book, he composed his own homage in elegantly drawn Chinese characters. He brings sunshine to your life, gives your dreams wings to fly. The Premier was also reported to have made a wisecrack about Hamlet, though no one I spoke to afterwards could recall what it was. I consulted journalistic colleagues about what was really going on here. During a trip burdened with major geopolitical issues and trade negotiations worth billions of pounds, for a Chinese leader to take time out for a jolly seemed unusual. In Hungary, his previous port of call, one had disappeared rapidly into meetings with Prime Minister Viktor Orban. In Berlin, where he headed next, a bilateral summit about the euro with Angela Merkel had been top priority. The British PM, meanwhile, had been left kicking his heels in London while his counterpart cooed over a first folio and two pretty young actresses. Politics were not, of course, absent from one's visit to Stratford. Culture, my colleagues reminded me, was an instrument of soft power in 21st century China as much as 16th century England. Sitting on his bench at the birthplace, the Premier made a point of stating, lest anyone forget, that China had its own Shakespeare's. The literary figures of China have produced a myriad of literary works, and reading these works will help one better understand the course of the development of our great nation. But from what anyone could divine, that was it. The real explanation for one starting his visit with Shakespeare was probably the simplest. He was a fan. At least it wasn't Harry Potter, said a friend. One was certainly not alone. Chinese visitors were thronging the UK. According to the Office for National Statistics, there are now something like 196,000 a year, more than ever before. When I should have been rationalising my notes from South Africa, I spent a morning frowning over ONS spreadsheets. The numbers were modest compared with visitors from France, 3.9 million visitors annually, and Germany, 3.1 million. But when one considered the expense of getting to Britain let alone the expense of staying, they were astounding. An economy flight from Beijing to London cost something like 6,000 yuan, 600 pounds, say 14 nights, factoring in accommodation, food and the rest. One wouldn't get much change from 30,000 yuan, 3,000 pounds per person, even if one came as part of a tour group. Some operators demanded a deposit of many thousands of yuan before they'd even accept your booking, not to mention the difficulty and expense of securing a visa. And why put Stratford on your once-in-a-lifetime itinerary? London is obvious. Shopping, must-see sites. The historic cities of Edinburgh or York are clear attractions. Likewise hops to Oxford and Cambridge or a stately home such as Blenheim Palace. But a detour to a small town in the Midlands whose chief export is theatre? I'd been 16 years old before I bothered to go to Stratford, and it was only two and a bit hours down the motorway. I called a Chinese travel agency with offices in Nottingham and Hailingjiang province. Was it really the case that Chinese tourists were eager to go to Stratford-upon-Avon? Absolutely, they said. Increasingly so. Of the 40,000 visitors they handled each year, roughly a quarter insisted on a visit. Others organised tours locally, perhaps as a summer holiday after doing a postgraduate degree. In excess of 80,000 Chinese students were in UK higher education at the time, 
and a master's programmes nearly as many Chinese postgraduates as there were British. One's visit had only increased this surging bardolatry, not least because the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust had cannily installed a photograph of the premiere in the World Pilgrims section of its museum. The Heilung Jiang Agency told me that one of their most popular tours combined two great British brands, Stratford and the Cadbury's Chocolate Factory at Bourneville. And did I know that Birmingham Airport was about to start accepting direct flights from Beijing, the first British city outside London to do so? Staff were being taught Mandarin in readiness for a tidal wave of Yuan-clutching Chinese. Why Stratford? I asked, just to check I wasn't missing something. The manager sounded bemused by my question. But the famous British author, of course. As the months went by and the countries on my itinerary crossed and recrossed, China and I kept blundering into each other. I was fascinated to discover that Shakespeare was banned from theatres and schoolrooms during the Cultural Revolution, and that within hours of the ban ending, people had queued around the block to buy copies of the plays. One's youthful passion must have been illicit. The Cultural Revolution only ended when he was 34. I read that 21 million Chinese 14-year-olds studied the trial scene from The Merchant of Venice each year. Why that play, though, no one seemed sure. Shakespeare fever had claimed some unlikely victims. According to a report in the Shanghai Daily, the best-selling author Zhang Yiyi was undergoing reconstructive surgery to make him look more like the bard at a cost of 1.4 million yuan, £150,000. Zhang told the press that life is a process of striving to become a better person. I wasn't alone in my burgeoning obsession with all things Chinese, the British government was only too eager to return one's overtures. In December 2013, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, his Chancellor and a jumbo jet load of business leaders embarked on a three-day trade mission to China. Deals worth £5.6 billion were brokered in everything from satellite technology to healthcare. Diplomats seemed particularly enthused by a £45 million contract to export British pig semen to Chinese farmers. We're doing all we can to ensure that businesses up and down the country reap the rewards of our relationship with China, a government spokesperson said. This time, culture was unnegotiably part of the deal. Britain's and China's culture ministers signed a memorandum of understanding. And I got a tip-off that a major new announcement was on its way. Organised in conjunction with the Royal Shakespeare Company, it was of a project to translate the complete works of Shakespeare into Mandarin, along with a number of Chinese plays, into English. Its cost, expected to be £1.5 million and a shock addition to the Culture Ministry budget, which was otherwise enthusiastically cutting subsidies for British arts organisations, would be borne by the taxpayer. Pig semen and Shakespeare, I thought on my way to Heathrow. It was good to know the British still had something to sell. England has so much to offer. As a reminder, if you have something to offer us, drop us a line at podcast at theamericanscholar.org. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and I'd like to thank you again for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks. Take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.